So Mark chapter 8 is where you want to be. Our story today involves another one of Jesus' miracles, and I I just want to throw this out there by way of introduction as we roll into yet another one of these miraculous moments from his life. It's just for you to consider with me really quickly, why does Jesus perform miracles? Like, what was his point or purpose in doing this? Well, I think the first point that you see or purpose behind his miracles is something that you're going to see in this story, and that's that Jesus had compassion for people. He cared for them. The reason that he did the miraculous, that he healed and restored, was because he was moved with compassion. He really deeply cared for individuals that he met with. And so because of that, he'd he'd engage with a person who who is helpless and hopeless, who is in need of a miracle. He would respond with a heart of compassion that drove him, compelled him then into action. And he would reach out and touch and do the miraculous. So it was first and foremost, I think, because he deeply cares for people. That's why miracles take place. But also, another reason why he did these miracles is because it proved his deity. Jesus, again and again in the Gospels, will do things that only he or only God could do, proving the fact that Jesus, uh, identifying him as God. It's Jesus walking on the water. It's Jesus feeding multitudes with loaves and fish, much like God had rained down manna in the wilderness. It's it's him doing things like curing incurable diseases, healing people with leprosy and other incurable maladies. He's doing those things to turn the crowd's attention towards him for them to recognize there's something more than just a man before us. That's why they say at times in the Gospels, behold, what manner of man is this? The idea is what kind of person, human being, can do this? They, they, they started to realize that there was something otherworldly about him. So he did it because he cared for people. He did it because it would prove his deity. It would show people who he really was. But he also did it because it would fulfill prophecy. And this is significant, that the prophets had foretold that when Messiah, when the Savior would come, remember, echoing from the very first promise made in the Garden of Eden, as soon as sin entered the world, that God told humanity, I will remedy what you've done wrong. And so our storyline of the Bible doesn't follow man's best effort to reach back and please God so much as it it logs and records God leaving heaven, promising to do that, to leave heaven, to reach down, to redeem and rescue humanity, that he would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And and part of those prophecies was that Messiah would come and he'd he'd give uh, hearing back to the deaf, that he'd give sight to the blind, speech to those who are mute. And so Jesus fulfills these prophecies arriving like he did, doing these miracles. But there's a fourth reason that I think is really important why Jesus does miracles in the scriptures and I believe still does them today. And that's because miracles give us a glimpse into Jesus' future kingdom. Think about this. It's not just because he cared. It's not just because he's God. It's not just to fulfill prophecy. It's because it would give his people a a glimpse into what it will be like to be with him. You see, we think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. Like we have a, 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 we have a world that works a certain way, functions a certain way. We even have weather systems or whatever and storms that rage. But Jesus would push pause on all of those systems in order to heal and restore, in order for him to calm the wind and the waves. That We would think of it as Jesus just providing an interruption to those things, a suspension of what we think of in our world as the natural order. But Jesus doesn't suspend the natural order. Jesus' miracles would restore the natural order. 
Think of that. That's different. Restoring the natural order because God never intended and will only briefly allow the brokenness that you and I face. The sin, sickness, suffering, and death are something that are only a temporary experience and something that Jesus himself has remedied for us. So when he does these miracles, they provide a glimpse, even a promise, that allow us to see what it will be like to be with him, where the world is made right again. Author Timothy Keller, he put it this way in his book, The Reason for God. And if you've never read it, it's a great book. Uh, but The Reason for God, if you've never read it and you even want a copy, I brought a couple extra copies with me today. I will gladly give it to you if you'll read it and then tell me what you think about it after the fact. But I really did bring two copies. So if you want one, come find me afterwards. But he put it this way. He said it this way. He said, Jesus has come to redeem where it was wrong and heal the world where it was broken. His miracles are not just proof that he has power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our mind, but a promise to our heart. And the promise is that the world that you and I want is coming. Hey, for some of you, you've come today, and this is kind of all you need to hear today. Because you're overwhelmed, and what you need is comfort. What you need to hear is that every miracle that Jesus performs is not just something that baffles our minds so much as it's meant to be something that comforts our hearts, that the world that you and I want is coming. That that's where he's taking us. And sometimes we have to slow down and remember that that's true, to hear and receive that. Now, the miracle we look at today is going to give you a bit of deja vu because it's going to feel very, very familiar to you. You find it in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on this multitude because they've now continued with me for three days and have eaten nothing. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said uh, to them, set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Domantha. Okay, now track with me in the story because there's a lengthy introduction that you can watch me fan through and skip over. Uh, because there are people who are skeptics of, of Christianity, of the Christian message and of the Bible, and they push hard on you if you're someone who believes in Jesus and trusts this book. They push hard on you saying, well, this is one of the reasons that we don't trust this book because they realize that this seems like an echo, that you're having a bit of deja vu as we read this story. It feels so very familiar. What they say, as critics of the Bible, is that they think that those who authored and created the Bible made a mistake and accidentally, mistakenly included the same story twice, but kind of on the details a little bit. They, they assumed that this was just accidentally recorded a second time in these old manuscripts, and because of that, it's proof that you really shouldn't trust this at all. 
So think of this. There, there is a story very familiar to this that we've already studied in Mark's, Mark's Gospel. Strikingly similar. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's similar in at least a handful of ways. The, the massive multitude that would gather to Jesus. The fact that he was moved with compassion. The disciples' doubt in the story is all too familiar to us. Jesus asking, well, how much food do you have? And, and then him having just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And then he multiplies that food. And many are fed. Even there's leftovers that are gathered together. And then he will leave leave the crowd and head off onto the Sea of Galilee. It's strikingly similar, but there are details here that are very, very different. And here's how it's different. Mark 6 and 8 take place in two different regions around the Sea of Galilee. This time, the people who are with him have been with him for three days, and he's actually afraid of their safety and well-being if they try to journey home from apparently some sort of a deserted place that's withdrawn from the villages that they've come to hear from Jesus. This time, he's got seven loaves instead of five. This time, it's a different kind of word that's used for fish. Uh, it's used here for a sardine, not necessarily the smoked fish that were previously referenced in the other story. There's a different word used here for the size basket. This is the basket. The, the word that's used is also used in the book of Acts, where you might remember a story where a guy is lowered down the side of a wall in a large basket. That these are massive basketfuls that were given, not just small baskets like were previously seen. There's lots of details here, but the biggest detail is that the previous crowd that Jesus was surrounded by was predominantly Jewish. And this time, this is Jesus, remember, he's been in the Gentile lands. So this miracle is Jesus now with the Gentiles. In fact, look ahead in your Bible to chapter 8, verse 17, where it's now saying that he's sitting down and the disciples are super confused about this whole situation and overwhelmed that Jesus did it again. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke? What do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of fragments did we take up? And they said 12. Also when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. And Jesus responds and says, well, then how is it that you still don't understand these? things. So in this little passage, Jesus will reference both of those miracles in the same sentence. So clearly, Jesus and the guys weren't thinking of this as some sort of an accident like many today point at and say, you really shouldn't trust it because the story finds itself mistakenly back in the text. Jesus said that these are two different events that happen on different days in different places. But here's our question. Why even put it in here? We've already seen Jesus do something like this. So what's the point or the purpose? Why include, in a sense, the same story or, or the same kind of miracle? Why include it more than once? And I think it's a question worth asking. And I've got four things I'd like for you just to consider, and then we'll wrap up together. The first is this. The reason this is recorded for us, even though it seems like a mirror image of something we've already seen, is because it highlights Jesus' compassion. That's the first thing. It's because it displays Jesus' compassion to us. In verse 2, I have compassion on the multitudes, Jesus says. It's a weird word in the Greek language, splagnon. It actually speaks of your internal organs. That's what it's talking about. That he felt it deeply inside of him. It's, it's the idea of like, I feel this uh, in my gut. Or uh, my, my daughter, Declan, she's four. Her bestie, as she refers to her, is her her cousin, uh, my niece, Maxine, who also is around here. Maxine uh, tells Declan, I love you with all of my heart. Declan hasn't quite got that concept, so she just tells you, I love you. What's her quote, Linz? 
She says, I love you in my heart or something. She's got all sorts of weird nuanced versions of it. It hasn't quite clicked yet. Uh, but that's the idea of communicating. I love you with all that I am. I feel this deep inside of me. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's the seat of human emotion in my gut. It's a gut-wrenching feeling. That's what compassion is, that he felt it deeply. Not just that he looked and saw a need, but that he felt the need deeply. Now think of this. If Jesus is the revelation of who God is, if he's the best way we understand God, if it's by looking at Jesus, that's how we know who God is, then I love the way that Jesus depicts God as so very compassionate. Because it's too easy for us to think of God as angry, or maybe even vengeful. Or for me, growing up in the church, I thought of God as an angry judge who was just kind of waiting for me to slip up, and then it was his opportunity to pounce on me. But think about the way that Jesus paints and depicts a portrait of the heart of God. He, he reveals it to us not as God being someone who wants to pounce on you, but God want, being someone who wants to help you who's moved with compassion and drawn to you, who was so moved with compassion and drawn to you that he moved out of heaven to bleed and die for you. That's the portrait of God that Jesus provides for us. Now, if you're honest with yourself, just slow down and think for a moment. If you were to attribute one emotion, one attribute to God, how would you describe him? And the way that you truly think of him, how would you as a person, if you're thinking of God, what one attribute would you use? What one human emotion would you ascribe to him and say, this is how God feels about me? Because I think for some of us, those, those takes, those looks, God's direction can be messy, can be broken. Because what we see in Jesus is the most common attribute, that's, that's the most common emotion that's attributed to Jesus is compassion in the scriptures. In the Gospels, this is what you hear again and again about Jesus. It's the thing that the guys who wrote this, who were there present with him, that they were so touched by, that, that they were struck with, was that Jesus was deeply moved inside of himself by human need. And that it compelled him, it drove him to action. Because think about it, real compassion is far deeper than just some feeling. In the stories of Jesus, it always led to some form of a response. These weren't empty words or feelings. It always caused an action to come. That's what compassion is. And if compassion is Jesus' response to what he'd often see in a broken world around him, then what should my response be? Because my response so often is irritation. Because I can look at things that even were just passed, legislation that was just passed, and feel irritated or angry and bypass the reality that this will deeply impact people's lives in a traumatic way, and I should be more than just angry. It's right to have righteous anger, but to have a deep sense of compassion for people and go, this is just compounding more brokenness. This is just causing more hurt in the lives and in the families of those around me. That I'm meant to look at a broken world and be driven by compassion. The truth is, a lot of times I'm motivated by frustration. I'm motivated even by anger. But our goal as followers of Jesus really is likeness to Jesus. And remember, Jesus spelled that out for us. He says it's going to look like loving God and loving people. Compassion, real compassion, has to be aware. It happens. Compassion does when you're aware of something, when you're aware of a need, when you're aware of a hurt. But here's the problem. We have to care enough to slow down to be aware of what's happening around us, to even know how to care for a person 
to even be aware of the fact that they need help or that they need a friend. And, and these can be global issues or little personal issues. For me, I'm in the rhythm and habit of assuming this about myself, that I am a selfish person. And if I have a selfless thought and think of another person, I'm assuming that it's God's spirit speaking to me. So I act on those impulses. And you think I'm joking. <laughs> no, but really, like, I know the truth of what scripture says of me. Like, and then I look in the mirror and see the reality. And then I ask my wife and she reaffirms it, that I am naturally turned inward. And so if I, as a selfish person, have a selfless thought about someone else or a selfless thought where I notice that someone seems off, then I'm going to shift my schedule for that moment, or I'm going to slow down in that instant, and I'm going to ask someone if they're okay. I'm going to be drawn to them because I want to, to be a person who's marked by the compassion that Jesus has for me, that it would impact me and I'd be thankful for it, but that I would then begin to reflect it to other people. But it means I have to slow down because I first need to be aware. And if I'm aware, then I want to be drawn into action like Jesus was. Whether it's just a willingness to speak up or to pick up the phone and shoot a text message or, or to give help or, or to roll up my sleeves or even just simply to offer to pray. I want to be a person who's marked by compassion, who's aware of hurt in someone's life, who's aware of brokenness, drawn to it because I want to, to do something to alleviate it. See, that's what compassion's meant to do. It's meant to drive you into action in order to alleviate the hurt, the brokenness, the pain, the sorrow. And we cannot, of ourselves, fix and do the miraculous. But Jesus can. We believe that. And that's why we as his people are drawn to those who are hurting. Because we want to bring hope and healing with us because we bring Jesus with us. Because we want to sit with them in their hard moments because the scriptures tell us that God is near the brokenhearted. And one of the ways he's near the brokenhearted is that he sends his people who are indwelt by or indwelt with his spirit to sit with someone and to hurt with them and to care for them. Compassion ought to be not just the way that that we can look at scripture and say this is the way that the world around Jesus described him. Compassion ought to be the way that the world around us describes us as his people. They ought to look at the church, and when, when people ask, what do you know of, of followers of Jesus? What do you think of Christians? Our world should be saying they are deeply compassionate people. You know, in Isaiah 39, there's a very interesting story that's recorded that if you're in a home group this week, I think you should open this story up and read it together. But in Isaiah 39, this really interesting story takes place where Isaiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah. And you might remember Hezekiah. Well, he comes this time with really bad news, sent, telling him a disaster is coming for this land. But he tells him, there's a caveat in there. He says, it's going to happen after you die. But disaster's coming. It's going to come right after you're out of, out of your position. And, and when disaster comes, he's really clear. Isaiah tells him, the enemy's going to come and ransack your palace. He's going to plunder the temple. He's going to desolate this land. And then he even tells him, your sons are going to become eunuchs and they're going to serve in a foreign king's household as slaves. And for most of us, for normal people, we'd hear that kind of, of news from a prophet that would impact our country, our people, our own home and family, and we'd be devastated. But the way that Hezekiah responds in that moment is so shocking because he looks at the prophet and says, the word of the Lord that you've spoken to me is good. And then it gets weirder. Because he says, at least there will be security in my days. That's his point. This is why I'm relieved. This is why it's a good report you bring, because at least I'm not going to feel it myself. The guy's heartless. All that he seems to be concerned about is, is the fact that, well, at least it's not going to happen in my time. 
At least it's not going to affect me. He's so self-centered that it, it becomes scary and ugly what you look at in this story because his personal comfort and success seems to be all that he's caring about. He's the exact opposite of an other-centered person, which is what Jesus proved himself to be again and again. And, and it's crazy because this guy, Hezekiah, I mean, he started out so very well, and his reign is marked by godliness and, and widespread peace. In fact, just a chapter before, he's begging God for mercy to allow him to live because he's dying, and God grants him 15 years of bonus life. And this is who the guy's become. He's a recipient of grace and mercy of the miraculous from God. And this is his response, is that he looks at the world and says, well, at least it's not affecting me. At least it's not in my day. Now, before we get crazy, build a time machine and go back to slap this guy around some, I think we need to slow down and recognize that as ugly as this is, there's a, there's a bit of us that we can find in this story. Because if we just had some real talk and said, well, how did we react this last week when we saw a humanitarian crisis at our border in Texas? What kind of things did we say or think when we looked at uh, a group of several thousand Haitians who are at our border looking for help? Do we say things like, wow, that's crazy. I'm just so glad though it's not in San Diego. Or wow, that's crazy. I, I just can't believe though that we had to pay to fly those people home. That's my tax dollars being spent on those people? Well, at least we didn't let them stay here because that made no sense at all. And then on to the next thing, we turn off the TV and say, I just wonder what's for dinner tonight. Or push rewind, not even that long ago, to where the most recent earthquake struck Haiti. We looked and we said, for some of us, wow, the devastation is crazy. That makes me so sad. What a relief it wasn't the San Andreas fault line. Because if it was there, I might have felt it. Because if it was there, Los Angeles would have been devastated. San Diego may have been shaken. But it wasn't, oh, praise God, at least it wasn't us. Like Hezekiah, what a relief. It doesn't affect me. Whew, dodged a bullet again. Are we blind to our own Hezekiah-like attitude at times that manifests and we make excuses for? I think so often this is the way that we think as we look at brokenness in our world. Even as followers of Jesus, we need to be honest that, that my eyes don't often see past my comfy bubble naturally. I have to choose to die to myself and think different about the world. It takes effort for me to think different about the world, to stop and choose to have compassion, to care. And real compassion is not just aware of what's happening in the world, but acts to alleviate the, the, the tragedy, the brokenness that we see in the world. And if, if I'm honest with you, I'll just tell you, this like bothers me. It ruffles my feathers because I like my life and I like the safety and the comforts of my life. And I don't like having to enter into other people's brokenness. But my version of compassion is, is so deeply broken. It's, it's looking at a person with a sign and saying what that guy needs to do is leave the sign and go get a job. Rather than being moved with compassion and, and looking and going, I wonder what kind of brokenness you've been through that's got you here. It's me looking and saying, gosh, it's so crazy what happens in Afghanistan, but I'm so glad I'm not stuck there. I'm so glad my children weren't born there. But that's about as far as our compassion can get. It's, it's tragic seeing what's happening in Haiti, but they better not come our direction looking for a handout because that's where we draw the line. 
Listen, if we're followers of Jesus, then, then we ought to think and look and act like Jesus. And compassion, true compassion, leads to an action. And in Jesus' life, it led to self-sacrificial action. Self-sacrificial action. For Jesus to do the things he did meant that he came here. And the reason he came here wasn't just to do the miraculous. It was to bring true restoration and hope and healing in the world, which meant a cross. So for Jesus to be driven to alleviate human suffering, for him to be moved with compassion was a self-sacrificial act. And so my compassion is empty unless it's marked by those same things, unless I'm willing to sacrifice. It's Jesus who initially taught, and then it's uh, the, the writers of the New Testament who reaffirmed what he taught, that we should view the whole world with compassion, especially those, those who are fellow believers in Jesus around the world. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you'll be rewarded. It's Galatians 6 saying, so then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why record this story again, in a sense? Because it feels like almost a mirror image of something we've already seen. Well, first and foremost, because it demonstrates Jesus' compassion, and I think it appeals to us to have a heart of compassion. But here's the second thing. That's, that's this. Why is it recorded? Well, because it displays Jesus' care for Jews and Gentiles. That's the second thing, and it's important, that it displays Jesus' care for the Jews and for the Gentiles. You see, the crowd here that gathers to Jesus of Gentiles, they didn't come and listen because Jesus fed them. In fact, Jesus didn't feed them in order to keep them interested. No, they came and were so desperate to hear from Jesus that they stayed for three days. And it, it's almost as if that desperation is transferred to Jesus when you hear him looking towards the crowd and saying with a sense of urgency, we can't send them home because for some of them it's a long journey and I'm concerned for their well-being if they make that journey on an empty stomach in a weakened state. This is different than the feeding of the 5,000. There's desperation in this moment. But the biggest difference between this and the feeding of the 5,000 is who Jesus is sitting with here. This is in a Gentile land. Jesus is surrounded by Gentile people, a non-Jewish crowd. One commentator cleverly said it this way. He said it was now the Gentiles' turn at Jesus' table. You see, Jesus' Gentile ministry, this was shocking and provocative. For us, we just look and we don't even bat an eye. But you need to understand, the Jews who he came to, had become prejudiced, they'd become racist and even sexist. And Jesus will arrive to those Jews, but then will find him with women sitting with them, caring for them, expressing value and love and care. And then he'd go into Gentile lands and do the same things, breaking the social norms, breaking the stereotypes that existed, breaking the brokenness of the culture to fix it, to mend it, to demonstrate what it was supposed to look like. You see, think about this story uh, compared to the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, he takes up 12 basketfuls, which we think at the end of the story, well, there's 12 disciples, it's one for each. But also your mind instantly, if you're a student of the Bible, goes towards the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a statement to the Jewish people that Jesus could satisfy all of them, that Jesus could save and restore all of them. That's what it was a statement to them. But now it's seven basketfuls that remain at the end of this story. 
It's interesting because in your Bible in the Old Testament, it's the seven nations that turn into the 70 nations that represent the Gentile lands. The, the number seven is used again and again in the Old Testament. And then even a confederation that existed in this region during this time of seven Gentile uh, neighboring villages is something that Jesus is present therein. So it's a statement then to the non-Jewish world that I can satisfy and save all of you, not just the Jews. I came for the world. I came as a loving savior, savior for all of you. So think about this. If all of that is true, then this story illustrates Jesus's unmerited favor. We call that grace. His unmerited favor on unlikely and undeserving individuals. That's what this story is. It's Jesus' unmerited favor, his grace, on unlikely and undeserving individuals. That's what the gospel is. This is a mini gospel portrait inside of the greater gospel. Because that's who I am. I am the unlikely, undeserving individual who can only approach Jesus begging for mercy, where he looks my way, moved with compassion, seeing that you will perish unless I intervene. And he then gives me undeserved, unearned favor. We call it grace. But he gives it at great expense to himself. He gives it by shedding his blood on a cross. This is a mini gospel portrait that you see in this story, a beautiful portrait of the grace and mercy of God. So now what is this supposed to look like for me as a 21st century follower of Jesus? For, for me to show that kind of grace, that unmerited favor on an unlikely individual? Well, for us as a family, we, um, we've been dealing with a slab leak at our house, which has turned into quite a bit of work that's been happening around our house. And uh, this last week, I was sitting with some tradesmen who came in to help us uh, sort things out. And one of them was commenting to another guy who was there working and started saying to him, uh, discussing the border issues that were going on where we had all of these individuals trying to get across our border, specifically people from Haiti. And as he started talking about it in, in such disdain in his voice, um, he, he made the comment, he said, you know, at least when people come from Mexico, at least when the Mexicans come, they have a fourth grade education. But these Haitians, if they get across this border, they only have a second grade level education. And so if they come here, we don't just have to house them and feed them, but now we have to educate them. And that's going to take years before they can start kind of uh, putting money, pooling money back into the system. And he just made the comment, so they don't belong here. They need to get out of here. Now, I'll tell you, as, as jarring as it was just to listen to some of that discussion, it's exactly what we would expect someone who lives in our present culture and system. It's exactly how we would expect them to respond. Because all of us have this inside of us where our greatest fear is that, well, if we let people like that in here, what if other people start lining up over there and then think that we'll help them too? Well, we'll, then, we'll, we'll take them also and then our lives, our welfare, our security, our comfort, our way of life and our ease of life may be interrupted by just allowing the door to crack, crack open for those people. And the human being who's different from me, in my estimation, this is the culture speaking, is not worth that risk. The risk of my life, my lifestyle, potentially being impacted negatively is not worth the risk of helping that individual. Instead, what we did is we put them on planes, give them $100 in a COVID test. True story. The truth is, this makes perfect sense, though, if your value system is money as the highest value. If your value system is safety as the highest value. If your value system is comfort as the highest value. 
But if you're a follower of Jesus, your highest value is people. Remember, intrinsic value of people, humans made in the image of God. So very valuable that God would redeem and restore us with the only thing he couldn't make more of, the precious blood of his son. Human beings are image bearers and as such have intrinsic value to God and ought to to us. And if that's true, then we ought to stand in opposition to the culture where, God forbid, we'd view someone who's displaced and in need only through a lens of government policy and no longer primarily viewing them as a person who's made in the image of God and as such, as an image bearer, worthy of love and care, dignity and respect. You know, I crashed a home group this week and I was thinking about this idea because there's so much that goes on in our world. And in this story, the reason I'll even talk about, we're talking about what we would think about crisis that's on a national level, not just like, hey, the compassion you should have for your next door neighbor, that is valid. But this story is talking about compassion Jesus had for Gentile nations that the Jews had a stereotype and were dismissive of. And that's why I think it's worthy of our consideration. And it's great. It's timely in the way that it lands with what's happening in our country, even in the last week and a half. But, but I was thinking about this while at a home group gathering this last week, because I think that we need to be fair about at least two different things that face the American church in the 21st century. We need to be fair when we're thinking about compassion and looking at brokenness in the world and wanting to be moved to action, compelled to help people. We, we have to be honest and at least admit the first thing is that not every problem you hear about is the problem or the pain or the suffering that you're expected by anyone to alleviate. Because you and I now have an access to information that, that in human history, no one else has lived the way that we do. We have access to information regarding every hurt and every bit of brokenness all around the whole world in real time. The rest of the world throughout history only lived on word of mouth or telegram as things moved forward or newspaper as it launched ahead. Now in real time, we're watching brokenness every day, all day long, and we can become so overwhelmed and paralyzed and feel a sense of responsibility like I need to remedy all of this. We have one savior. One Savior who promised restoration, who at the end of the book says, Behold, I make all things new again. That one Savior will give you a burden for specific places and circumstances, but we are not meant to nor created to bear the weight of the world. This is why at some point in time you find yourself saying, I've just got to turn the TV off. It's because we're not made to function this way. In fact, think of Jesus. One author said this of Jesus, and I loved this. I read this years ago and wrote it down, just loved it. It's, he said this, he said, Jesus did not go in person to meet the needs of everyone in Europe, Africa, Asia, or the Americas, yet he prayed at the end of his life, I have completed the work you gave me to do. Think about that. Remember those moments where the guys would come and find Jesus and say, Jesus, the whole crowds, they're looking for you. The whole village is gathered and Jesus would tell them we're leaving. His decision to go was saying no to real people and real needs. He left in his wake a trail of disappointed people and needs that went unmet in moments. Think about that. And it's because Jesus didn't just live under the pressure of potential. Instead, he lived out his calling, and the two of those things are very different. He lived out his calling when he would hear from God and be burdened by the Father to move on to a new place. He would follow that directive rather than living under the crushing weight of potential because Jesus could have always done more. 
There's always more to heal. There was always more he could do. There was always more he could say. But Jesus didn't live under that weight, and he even seemed okay with the fact that that left some people disappointed and frustrated with him. We have to be willing to live like Jesus lived. And no, I don't, I don't shoulder the weight of the world, and I'm going to live out my God-given calling, but that does not mean we get to shirk off the need to do something. It does mean we're freed from the burden to do everything or to, do, or to be anyone's savior. Because opportunity does not always equate to responsibility. There's a difference there. Opportunity does not always equate to responsibility. Just because there's a need or an opportunity does not mean that I am always responsible because it wasn't even true for Jesus. However, there's this second problem that's true for the 21st century church. Not just do we have access to all of the world's brokenness all in real time, which is too much for us. It's that we have to admit like Jesus with love and compassion, showing unmerited favor, even at personal expense and cost to ourselves, we have to admit that does not and has not and will not ever align with any political party. For us to live this way is to be countercultural in the same way it was for Jesus. You had different facets and, and ideologies that were present in that region, and you find in the Gospels all of them came at him with, with frustration. He didn't fit in any of them because this is such a different value system the kingdom is than any other value system in our world. You see, as Jesus' followers, we have to recognize that his life and teachings, the ideology involved in being a true follower of Jesus does not align with any human construct of power or authority. It doesn't align with any man-made political ideology or party. It never has in all of history. Because greatness in Jesus' kingdom, he said, is based on serving. Greatness is not based on finding a way to get above someone else. It's willing to self-sacrifice and place your needs beneath someone else. That you elevate someone else by decreasing yourself. By your quality of life decreasing, you self-sacrificing, you're allowing some, someone else to benefit from that. Scholars refer to that as the upside-down kingdom. It's upside down because it takes the world's values and flips them on their head. But when we look at the world and how broken it's been throughout all the ages, really it's the world system that's broken. It's Jesus flipping it right side up again. This is the only thing that works. This is the only thing that brings hope and peace and joy and restoration. What if we were people who were moved with compassion, who leapt into action? I mean, last week we had guests here who shared with us about terrible, tragic brokenness that's happening in our world, specifically in Afghanistan. Like, what if, what if our play in response to that was, was looking and saying, yeah, it's great in our country that our government has stepped into places that the church used to be in, spaces that we vacated and our government stepped into, like uh, uh, orphanages were something that the church had started that didn't exist until followers of Jesus first opened one. Hospitals and hospice care are actually coming from the roots of of those terms and of that whole movement are from Christian hospitality during the plague in Rome. If, if Christians had stepped out of those places, our government has stepped in, but in other nations where these people who are leaving Afghanistan are landing, those countries do not have the infrastructure to provide those things, to provide care for the orphaned, for the widowed, or for the refugee. They don't have anything set up. So what if we, the people of God, 
Say, we'll be moved with compassion and we'll do what the church used to do. In, in, in years and decades and centuries of history, what the church has done that we no longer do because we look the direction of others and say, do it for us. And then we get frustrated when someone else might step in and take some of that benefit from us. No, let's be different than the culture. Let's step in and say, okay, so if they land in that country, what would it look like for us to provide housing? What would it look like for us to provide uh, clothing and food for their children? What would it look like for us to step into the brokenness of the Afghan refugee situation? What would it look like for us to step into the brokenness of those in Haiti who don't want to be there because of how broken it is? Do you, do you know that just weeks before the earthquake shook it to its core again, that the president was assassinated there, which created a power grab and, and literally like riots in the streets and gang violence? to where people were vacating the city. And then an earthquake happens. Do you know two days after the earthquake that a tropical storm named Grace, which is heartbreaking, Grace, hit the island and flooded it with five to 10 inches of rain across the entire island. People were so afraid of taking shelter inside of buildings because they'd been shaken to the core. They were afraid that the rain would knock them down and that's how they'd die. And so instead they stayed outside in the elements. And I realized the people who were just refugees at our border were not people who were just there just a brief time ago. They're people who had left after the first quake, but they came our direction and we sent them back there. But what would it look like for us as the people of God to say, well, what, what can we do to help those people? What can we do to be moved with compassion to draw near to people who are hurting in a situation like this? Listen, are we willing to love our neighbor even if, even when it costs us personally? Or are we only willing to love our neighbor, as Jesus told us we ought to, when it doesn't put us out at all? If, if that's all we do, can we even call that love? Am I loving them when I'm happy to accept less for them than I would ever stand for, for me and my family? I want to be moved with compassion like Jesus was, drawn to people. And this story shows me his compassion, and it shows that compassion for unlikely people who didn't fit in the cultural stereotypes of even the people that anyone should be compelled to help. That's who he was drawn to, unlikely individuals that he could just pour out unmerited favor, grace on. Here's the third thing, and we're in the home stretch. Why record this story? Well, because it displays Jesus' pattern of including his disciples. That's why it's recorded for us, because it displays the pattern Jesus has of including his disciples in the work. I mean, all throughout the Bible, God's seen partnering with men and women to accomplish his work in the world. He's not required to do things this way, but he chooses to. He still chooses to. This isn't just a story of Jesus feeding a multitude. When you think about it, it's also a story of Jesus' followers feeding the multitude because Jesus included them in the work. There's this rhythm and following Jesus that's meant to be a part of each of our lives, not just that we come to Jesus to be fed, to receive love, but that we also go out from Jesus, being the one whom God has commissioned to go love the world through us, to go and feed and care for others, as we've talked about, to put skin on God in the world. This is why the story is recorded for us. And in the moments when, when sometimes we want to do that, we're genuinely inspired and say, Jesus, I want you to use me, we undoubtedly all of a sudden see our own resources as being terribly inefficient. We undoubtedly, we think that, that we'll fall miserably short of being able to have any real impact in someone's life because we look in a mirror at just what we bring to the table. We undoubtedly, we, we feel totally insufficient to truly help anyone. But that's Jesus' problem to solve, not mine. 
And if the story teaches me anything about partnering with Jesus, it's that he can cope with my insufficiency and still do wonderful and amazing things that touch the lives of others through my insufficient offering that I give to him. We can't let our limited stash of loaves and fish become our excuse for not caring or trying to help people around us. We need to offer the little that we feel that we have to Jesus, however limited those gifts or resources may seem, and be ready then to distribute them and be amazed at how God will use them, how he'll use our lives as we take steps forward, driven by compassion, compelled to express the grace that we've received. Here's the last thing, and here's how we land the plane. Why is it recorded? Well, it's recorded because it displays the disciples' their tendency to forget. The story is recorded because it highlights the disciples and their tendency to forget. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? In the story, we're like two chapters later. I mean, it hadn't been that long of time, right? How quickly they forgot about Jesus feeding the 5,000, how quickly they forgot about his ability to handle pretty much the identical situation. In this moment, they seem overwhelmed again. They seem frustrated again. And it unfortunately so accurately describes many of us <laughs> where we can be just like them, where we're so quick to forget, where we can see and believe that God will do great things and then all of a sudden the next moment we're totally overwhelmed. We need to remember that Jesus is still the same and has the solution to every problem of life. I mean, most of us, we've had those moments where we're so impressed with God where God expresses his care for us in such a personal and unique way, where God steps in and miraculously provides for our families, where God aligns things and we look and go, God, only you could do that. And a week later, we're on our knees again, crying out in desperation, but with a lot of frustration going, God, where are you? You've abandoned us. We're like the children of Israel saying, you delivered us to bring us out into the wilderness to die. And we echo those same sentiments, freaking out and saying, God, where are you? God, this is too much for me. God, my life is over. God, have you abandoned me? We're so soon so quick to forget. I like the simplicity one commentator noted regarding Jesus' compassion in this story. This is what he said. He said, this miracle, even more than the first one, the feeding of the 5,000, emphasizes the thoughtfulness of Jesus. The thoughtfulness of Jesus when he said, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way and some of them have a long way to journey. The thoughtfulness of Jesus. I love thinking of God that way. That God is thoughtful towards us. That's something that's carried throughout all of scripture. Remember, his thoughts towards me are more numerous than the stars in the sky, the sands of the sea, that, that they're more numerous than the hairs on your head. Think about it that God cares for you. He's moved with compassion, drawing near you. We need to remember that Jesus is still the same and has the same solution to every one of life's problems. And sometimes I think in life we have to like the guys, and you can close your Bible, but we have to remember his power, that he can step in. They needed to remember that. But sometimes I think we just need to remember his goodness and care. And for the disciples in this moment, what they needed to remember was Jesus' power, that he was capable of doing this. But later on in their story, as you get to deeper chapters in their life story, after Jesus would die and then rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, it would be Jesus' goodness and care that they had to remember because they were suffering. 
In a moment when they were overwhelmed by a problem, they needed to remember his power. In a moment where they were overwhelmed because they were suffering, they needed to remember that Jesus was there with them and deeply loved them. And I don't know which chapter in your story you're in. Or maybe today you just need to remember that he's powerful and is capable. Or maybe you're suffering and you just need to remember that he's present. I just want to remind you that the risen Jesus cares for his people at least as much in his glorified state as he did when he roamed the earth some 2,000 years ago. He cares for his people at least as much as he did now that he's in a glorified state, at least as much as he did when he was roaming the earth some 2,000 years ago. We have this terrible tendency to remember things we should forget and then forget the things we should remember. We remember the things we should forget, even things I believe in Scripture we're given permission to forget. We're allowed to forget the things which are behind us, our past failures and brokenness, that we're forgiven and loved. That if Scripture says that he, he removes our sin, casting as far as the east is from the west, he doesn't bring it up again. He's choosing not to remember and hold it over us again. We remember those things that we ought to forget, if even he has chosen to do that but then we forget the things we ought to remember. A story like this slows us down to remind us that the things that once brought us hope, the things that once brought us joy, the things that once brought us salvation are still true and valid. The one who could previously solve the crazy crisis is present today and still able to solve the crazy crisis. The one who looked at an impossible situation and stepped in, moved with compassion, looks at your broken situation, steps in, moved with compassion. He moves with the power of heaven then and now. The things that we need to be willing to forget, we often remember. The things we need to remember, we are so soon to forget.